Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded, a podcast all about creating visibility, paths for growth, and opportunity for entrepreneurs. We focus on those entrepreneurs who are statistically underrepresented in the startup ecosystem. Your hosts are Zena Island, president of X Plus PR, a media relations agency, angel investor Aurelia Flores, managing member of Athena Digital Media Group, a digital marketing agency, and angel investor Christina Francis, president of Esteem Logic, an information technology, consulting, and training firm. In each episode, you will meet a new startup founder, hear about their company and where they are now. We then focus on one key challenge facing that entrepreneur, a challenge that is common among startups. Each episode also features a guest expert to weigh in on the challenge. Welcome to Get Found, Get Funded. Welcome to another episode of Get Found, Get Funded. In this episode, we learn about the Mentor Method, a company that helps organizations create inclusive workplace cultures by mentoring diverse talent. In fact, they aim to do for diversity and inclusion what Meetup and eHarmony did for finding people that get you. Many, face, many companies face challenges navigating the waters of business-to-business sales. Today, we'll dive into some of these challenges and discuss challenges specific to the Mentor Method. We are here today with Janice Omadeki, CEO and founder of The Mentor Method. As we just mentioned, The Mentor Method is a platform connecting diverse tech talent to career mentors from companies increasing their diverse hiring par- pipeline. Janice participated in accelerators, including MIT's Global Entrepreneurship Bootcamp, the 1776 Global Accelerator, and SeedSpot. She was also a member of Rent the Runway Foundation's Project Entrepreneur Class of 2017 as the top 10 finalist. And recently, Janice was selected to be a part of the Mass Challenge Accelerator. The mentor method was one of 84 companies selected out of 520 global applicants. Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And our guest expert is Henry Hernandez. Henry Hernandez has an in-depth professional experience that includes corporate development, marketing, and strategic planning. His engagements have supported technology firms seeking seed funding with strategies to grow their business. He's considered a strategic leader and subject matter expert in the fields of diversity and inclusion and multicultural marketing. Henry's former roles include principal and senior consultant for diversity and inclusion executive consulting, vice president, director of diversity inclusion for SEIC, vice president and chief diversity officer at American Express, executive director for global diversity leadership at Pitney Bowes, He currently serves on the advisory board for a technology-based firm, Latin E, that is targeting the Hispanic market. He also serves as an advisor on the Diego Multicultural Marketing Advisory Group. Henry is co-founder and president of Nishimba, National Society of Hispanic MBAs, and formally he served as an intelligence officer for the CIA. (laughs) Welcome, Henry. Thank you very much. That was a great introduction. (laughs) Thank you, Henry. Janice, thank you for being on our show. Tell us a little bit how you came up with the idea of the mentor method. Happy to. So I started the mentor method just over two years ago after seeing a need in the market based on my own experiences. I think it's really fascinating how sometimes life will uh, create a solution to a problem that so many other people are facing. And so as a woman of color in tech and Fortune 1000 companies, despite having certifications, PMP from MIT and entrepreneurship and otherwise, oftentimes I was the token that companies used 
to just check off their diverse hiring box versus taking the time to invest in me and seeing me as an asset. Two, when it came to corporate mentoring programs, I found that oftentimes they settled for matching me based on things I couldn't control, like age, race, and gender, and didn't take into account who I was as a professional. And because of that, I never felt included and oftentimes left for a competitor or left to another company that would value my voice and would value my contributions. And in recognizing that 14 million other women and people of color would leave an employer for the same reason, I wanted to be a part of the solution to change that for Fortune 1000 companies. So tell us a little bit about your ideal client. I mean, you mentioned Fortune 1000 companies Mm -hmm. are your ideal client, but tell us a little bit more, give us some more texture there. And importantly, what does a sales cycle look like for your ideal client? Yeah, so the sales cycle takes, it's typical enterprise sales, so about six to nine months um, when the sale goes well. Our target customer is in the C-suite or executives that are able to manage a budget and be able to understand the need for increased workplace inclusion and be able to easily overcome any sort of budgeting barriers to help their employees as well as uh, produce revenue for the mentor method. That's a pretty broad group of people. Is there anything else that you want to talk about with regard to your ideal client? Anything that would be um, specific to the company itself or, um, yeah, anything at all? Sure. So typically they are in the HR Field. So maybe it's the head of inclusion. It could be a talent manager, program manager. The role changes depending on the company and how the company is structured, but it's typically those responsible for workplace inclusion, and that's their sole focus is increasing retention and inclusion within the company. Yeah, so, so Janice, I think that's great as we're seeing such a shift from organizations launching diversity inclusion efforts, diversity inclusion and equity efforts uh, because of compliance towards something that they must do to stay competitive. And you mentioned, you know, adding value or, or value to the voice of uh, individuals that work for them. Um, how has this impacted, how has this impacted how you message your value to these companies? Well, I think it's important to focus on the need, right? That's something that at the Mentor Method, our entire team takes very seriously versus sitting in a room and coding what we think the problem, uh, what we think the solution should be. We want to know what the problem is and then work with our customers to make sure that we're delivering a top tier solution for those problems. Um, What we're finding is the Mentor Method is actually solving a problem in terms of workplace inclusion and development and helping these large companies keep their top talent. With tech products, there is often a balance between off-the-shelf functionality and integration with company policy, process, and culture. Henry, how could Janice and others effectively communicate and demonstrate value and ROI for talent managers and CDOs? Are there different things she needs to consider at the initial stage or the pilot stage versus later stages of enrolling a, the larger management team and getting a sustained contract? The, the, that's actually a really good uh, question because I, I've dealt with it before, in fact, as a chief diversity officer. But the, the, the real key 
element is where are they in their talent development process? Uh, some companies are trying to address talent gaps. Uh, they might be trying to focus exclusively on their high potential development. Some of them are starting to get it and they're focusing on retention, attraction, and development of women and minorities. And because of generational challenges now in the workplace, even millennials, uh, leadership engagement is sometimes another area that they're trying to address where they really want leaders more engaged in the professional development of, of their employees. Uh, but there's also one that I, I've heard and I've certainly dealt with it before, and it's how do you address, address the, the talent gap of the talent cliff that you might see with uh, aging baby boomers. Uh, there's a lot of companies that aren't really prepared for when these boomers that have incredible experience and knowledge leave the company and they don't have anyone to fill in that gap once they leave. So, Henry, you've told us a little bit about the, the challenges that companies are having and particularly challenges that you've seen, but how does Janice message to those people that she can help bridge that gap? How does she get in and explain what the, what the product is doing and how to get in front of those people? What, tell us more about what you would suggest there. Well, a, a lot of it really is a, a, a consultative approach, really trying to understand what those needs are. Uh, beyond just the usual suspects. I mean, you could be talking to the chief diversity officer. They're going to tell you probably what you already know. It's getting beyond that person and maybe talking to somebody in talent development, uh, maybe talking to recruiters, and even line leaders. Line leaders will tell you, I'm having difficulty with this or I'm having difficulty with that. And they're the ones that eventually are going to be the ones that are going to help get this process moving along and maybe even uh, getting someone to even try it. And that's where that, that pilot stage is a great opportunity. Uh, employee resource groups would be a great audience to try this in, in a pilot. Uh, certainly meeting with executive and talent development. Uh, the HR line leaders are always good for providing input. The chief diversity officer is going to tell you probably more what the pain points are. They're going to be very specific, very direct, and they're not going to hold punches. And that's probably not a bad thing to do is to try to understand what those pain points are. But uh, probably the most important thing that I always tell anyone is do your homework. Do your homework in advance of any kind of meetings and try to understand where are they today in their journey? Is there even a need? Am I going to be wasting my time? Am I going to be wasting their time? Is this just going to be a courtesy meeting? Or are we really trying to address a need and, and find a solution for them? So let's assume then that Janice is talking to somebody that is interested. So it's not just part of the company vision and the annual report, but they're really taking this seriously, right? Because there's always a distinction there. Um, so if you were in that role and you're interested in the product itself, what kinds of questions would you be asking? That's a really good question because I've been in that role <laughs> multiple times uh, in different settings. And I've also assisted as a consultant trying to walk through the process with, with clients. So the basic question to answer is, what's the model? What is the model that you have for the Mentor Method? What is it that, that this is going to be providing? What's the process? Uh, really trying to, to, trying to articulate what is that about. Uh, is it a formal process? Is it an informal process? Or is it a hybrid? Can you do one or the other or both? Um, the matching process. What do, what do you do to actually ma match the mentors with the mentees? And then the thing that always seems to be a, a place where a lot of uh, organizations might get hung up is, what's the administrative process? Mm -hmm. uh, who's going to be in charge? Who's going to oversee this? 
what sort of a metrics uh, are you going to be able to provide? Uh, who's going to have access? Who has administrative rights to the access? And then the bottom line, what are the costs? Uh, the other thing is what's uh, an orientation that you might be able to have for the participants? Are there tools? Are there uh, specific processes that they need to, to be aware of? Uh, when I was at American Express, we actually had an informal uh, mentor initiative, and I had to put together a book that was specific to the mentors and a book that was specific to the mentees so that they understood what are the rules of engagement, what are the roles and responsibilities, how do I go about going through this mentoring initiative. Uh, and then finally, the thing that I always tell any organization when I'm involved in, in, in doing an engagement or even in my own work as a strategist is what are some competing models? Mm -hmm. uh, it's the, the one thing you don't want to do is walk into a meeting and get blindsided by somebody that's already done their homework and they know what the competing models are out there and then they, they blindside you with questions that either you cannot answer or you find out that maybe somebody else has a better mousetrap. So I have a question. I'll go back to, you said that it was American Express that has a mentoring program. We, that we had a, an informal program. You had an informal program because I just left um, um, in a, a program last week where I found out Toyota has a similar model of an informal mentoring program. So what would Janice do to come in and, you know, and introduce the mentor, mentor method? Would this be a good opportunity for her? If they already have a process in place, I would say no. Okay. Uh, and unless that program isn't working. If there's, a, if there's a pain point, the program isn't working, people aren't happy, uh, it costs too much, the mentors aren't meeting with the mentees or vice versa, they're not responsive, then that's a good, that's a good opening to come in and say, you know what, I think I have a solution for you. But, yeah. but the, the real opportunity is where you know that someone needs a mentoring initiative because of whatever reason, it could be trying to focus on talent development, increasing retention or development of minorities in women or millennials, you have to address a, an, an existing need. If there's already a process in place, and I, I, as a business development pro professional, I understand it's very difficult to displace an incumbent. And that's because somebody's already gone through the time, the effort, the investment to capture that, that service provider. And unless they're really doing a terrible job, it's really hard to, to displace them. Janice, did you want to add something? I did. Um, one, something I'm finding in speaking to these Fortune 1000 companies is that oftentimes the current solution isn't working. So, for example, they might be using a spreadsheet, and an associate in HR is the one managing an entire verticals mentorship program based on the spreadsheet. So when it comes to those sorts of solutions as the incumbent, um, do you have any advice? I agree with you saying that the incumbent, it can be a difficult barrier, but if it's something that when the mentor method comes in, we make their job easier, we make it more efficient, they have more data to go back and support um, their internal initiatives. Is there anything else you think we should be covering um, when showing that our solution is better than the incumbents? Yeah, I, I actually like going after the internal solution, and, and especially if it's not working. Um, the way to really attack it, though, is not to sell them, well, our external process is going to be a lot better than, than, than your internal process. What you have to do is really get underneath it, 
understand what the pain points are, what's not being addressed, uh, really trying to get into the details of why is this thing not working. You're, you're basically consulting to them on how to improve their process, but you're not going to tell them how to improve it using their internal method. What you're trying to do is find the solution, the solution using your external method. The other thing that's going to be really important is what are the costs? Uh, someone is spending their time and their effort overseeing and managing this. And if it's, and, and if it's, and generally, it's, it's an addition to what their day job is. So if they're spending excess number of hours on managing this process and their day job is actually being impacted, that's a great opening and opportunity to come in and say, you know what, you're spending an excess number of hours in managing and overseeing this. We can cut that by 75% or maybe even eliminate it completely. And that's, that's one way to really kind of help. So let me, let me ask this question, because you hit on pilots earlier, but in, let's go back to assuming that the company doesn't have a system in place, or maybe they have disparate processes or systems, and assuming that you thought the mentor method, this product, worked for your company, who would you need to get on board in order to approve investing in the product, whether it is starting with a pilot and then moving to something larger? And how would you go about doing that? Um, the real key is going to be trying to identify whether there is a burning need, what's the burning platform, and then who would be the constituents that you really want to go after. So if it's a retention and development issue, you definitely are going to want to get the attention of the, the head of HR, the chief human resource officer. The entree might be through the chief development officer. Uh, it could be through the chief diversity officer. It could be someone in executive talent. They'll tell you how to be able to navigate through that minefield so you don't step on one. And that's really kind of what the best approach is. If you find someone who's a line leader, that, that's gold right there. Because if you can convince a line leader, this is the process that, you wanna, that, that I think will work, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll champion it. Yeah. They become your sponsor. They become your advocate. That's, that's, that's gold if you can find someone like that. So let me, let me follow up with a question, because you, you mentioned, uh, you know, with American Express, they had informal uh, mentoring processes and systems, and I think a lot of companies now, as we're seeing in the diversity, inclusion, equity space, they're trying to formalize those processes. How do you balance that need of maybe having something informal so that more of your staff will participate versus something formal so that, the, again, the, the company itself can hone in on metrics and impact? Yeah, the... The real key pretty much to any kind of a process or even a technology solution is the proof of concept. If you can demonstrate the proof of concept, you at least have them in a, uh, having some level of interest. The other thing is simplicity. Mm -hmm. If it's going to be really complicated for someone to understand what that model is, then you've already lost them. They're not going to want to spend any more time learning about what this thing is about. The thing that also is also very powerful are testimonials. Mm -hmm. If you can have someone who's been a success story, uh, they're even willing to go out on a limb and, and talk to maybe their peer or maybe even to put it into writing so that it's institutionalized. Let me tell you, that's, that weighs a lot, especially when you're talking about one Fortune 500 HR officer mm -hmm. versus another Fortune 500 HR officer. They talk to each other anyway. Right. So if you can get one of them to say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'd like to, to be one of your testimonials. I'd like to be a, a reference for you. Mm -hmm. Who do I need to talk to? Boy, jump on that. So with that said, um, I know Janice sometimes cannot disclose who her clients are all the time. So Janice, how would you handle, you know, being able to provide a testimonial? 
I like to use the end user. Um, so let's say, for example, one of our clients right now is in the Fortune 500, and we're going through the approvals process for media and marketing. Um, but being able to get feedback from the mentees and mentors that are using our platform from within that company and being able to use, you know, their first name and last initial is still a great way to show that the mentor method does work and it's providing a helpful solution to these organizations without necessarily needing to list the company name. And I found that to be helpful and um, makes it easier to overcome that barrier. Awesome. So what could, as a founder, could Janice do to assist you with enrolling others? Um, I, definitely having someone that can talk to uh, what has been the user experience. I mean, think about today as far as technology. The user experience is the thing that reigns. Mm -hmm. You may not even be really, you might not even be the best solution. But if the user experience is superior and really is starting to work, people don't care. That it's, that it's not the best solution. It's, it all basically comes down to the user experience. This was easy. I was able to get online. I was able to meet with my mentor. We've been able to, to trade information. He's actually or she's actually provided me with additional people that I can talk to. That's really what it comes down to. The, the, the UX is really important. So let's address the sales cycle for a minute. Um, Janice was talking a little bit ago that it's a six to nine month sales cycle. And that might be, it might even be longer than that. Um, tell us a little bit about the sales cycle and particularly if she's looking to get pilot programs implemented, what, what should she expect there? So as a management consultant, I face that all the time. Sure. And even as a chief diversity officer, I used to face that all the time. And it basically comes down to this. What's the need? What's the priority? Is this a burning platform? In, in a past life, and you and I worked at the same company, sure. Um, I hit one of those. I raised such a big issue that all of a sudden it went from a mediocre sort of priority to now an incredible priority. And so the solution was we need to have our own mentoring initiative. And they pretty much decided they didn't want to go with an internal process. They wanted to go with an external. But I kind of I pulled an end run being the chief diversity officer. I said, okay, HR is going with an external process, but the employee resource group said, we want our own mentoring initiative. So I said, okay. I provide them with a tool. I self-empowered them. I said, you guys come up with some of the processes that are going to be required. We had a bunch of techies that were part of that. Mm -hmm. And they went ahead and developed their own internal initiative. And it actually was in the process of being implemented before the external one was because of all the morass in just dealing with the politics and getting the buy-in. So a lot of it really depends on whenever you're dealing with the budgets, First of all, what is that budget cycle for, for budgeting? Uh, a lot of times it might be, you might have caught it right after budgets have already been approved. So now you're already in a, in a pretty much to one year waiting. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it really depends on what's the priority, what's the burning platform, and when are budgets due? If you can get in front of that and actually prove the business case for the investment, then you might stand a good chance of winning. Yeah, so when from also from a past life, when I heard six to nine month sales cycle, I thought that was incredibly short given who um, Janice's ideal clients are. Um, in the Fortune 1000, I was thinking more along the lines of at least 
12 to 18 months. And I think, Henry, you brought up another good point. And that's only if this is an urgent need, right? If it's not an urgent need or if there's more education or handholding that needs to happen, that sales cycle may be quite a bit longer. Yeah, so Janice, uh, I have a question for you because you've um, had an amazing journey so far and have pivoted a bit. Can you share what you've learned in selling into large corporations and what kind of feedback do you seek around that? Absolutely. Um, seconding what, um, what's been said by, by Henry in that you need to find the right buyer. So early on in the development of the mentor method when we made the pivot to enterprise last summer, um, we had the hypothesis that our buyer would be um, a specific set of professionals. And in discovering budgets and authority to expand on those budgets and internal politics, we found that our customer is actually a different, in a different category. And Henry and I actually spoke about this on a separate conversation as well, and that was extremely helpful with the development of our sales cycle. I'm glad that helped, Janice. <laughs> yeah, no, it really did. Thank you. And we should have another conversation. Expect an email. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That, that's what we're here for, that's making the connection. So, Henry, what are other thoughts for Janice, not just as a former CDO, but also your role as a strategist, consultant, and advisor to other startups? Um, the one thing that I always see as being a, a real challenge with a, a small enterprise or a startup is um, what's their strategic plan? I'll look them dead in the eye, and I'll ask them, what's your strategic plan? And generally what gets articulated is ex extremely tactical, uh, I can't really see what that roadmap is. Where are they trying to go? What are they trying to be? How are they going to try to get there? If I can't hear or see what those are, then they need to re really go back and revisit what is their strategic plan. The other thing is, what's their business model? How are you going to make money? Who are you selling to? How are you selling it? Those are just sort of basic fundamentals. The one thing that I always try to tell a small business is, what are your differentiators? What are you the best at? Name the one thing that you are the best at. And how are you going to differentiate from your competitors? If you can't articulate to me, you're in for a really rough ride. Um, you know, the other thing is, uh, what's the ease of use of this particular model? Uh, what, are, uh, what are the price points for implementation of a model like this? Um, the, the second thing that I, I always ask companies is how well capitalized are you? Do you have the, the right funding to be able to get to where you need to be? Because that can also be a delimiter. You might have a great strategy, you might have a great product, but sometimes uh, being undercapitalized is, is an Achilles heel. And then finally, listen to what the marketplace is telling you. You might be going one way and the marketplace is trying to pull you and take you a different direction. You have to be able to understand, hey, I think maybe I need to shift because the market is pulling me in a different direction. Market push does not work. It maybe worked for IBM back in the day. <laughs> Ask them now right? <laughs> if that works. No, it doesn't. I don't have to buy your big box because you're IBM. I'll just go ahead and go to any of the other service providers and get what I need. So that's really important. Listen to what the market's telling you. For our listeners who are in the B2B space, I want to back us up just a little bit. Both Henry, both you and Janice, you as well, talked about going outside who might be the um, 
usual suspects, right? You know, not just talking to the chief diversity officer, maybe talk to the head of the line, um, not just talk to people in HR, but talk to maybe ERGs or what have you. Um, Henry, tell us a little bit more about exactly how Janice, who's somebody outside that ecosystem, outside that company, figures out who the right person is to talk to and how she does that without offending anybody inside the ecosystem. Yeah, Um, that's a really good question. And I think today, the business environment today is much more willing to be able to have those kinds of conversations that maybe even when I was a supplier diversity professional almost 20 years ago. Um, Today, I mean, there's all sorts of conferences. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of uh, advocacy groups that are out there. And, And they can be uh, an enabler. So, you know, one of the, infor- the things that I always tell a minority or a small business is to get certified, whether it's through the Women's Business Enterprise National Council, through the National Minority Supplier Development Council, through the GLBT Council. I mean, there's all sorts of, I mean, even veterans. Think about it. When I was in this space, it was the SBA, it was WeBank, and it was NMSDC. Mm-hmm. Those were the only games in town. Today, there's a lot of organizations out there that will say, well, I'll help, you get, I'll help you get certified. The other thing is just being able to participate in those advocacy organizations, going to the conferences, going to the U.S. Hispanic Chamber Conference, going to the WeBank Conference, NMSDC, whatever. As long as you're getting your name out there, you're helping to brand yourself, and also you're helping to make maybe the right types of connections for finding the right customer that, that's going to be ideal for you to, to sell your product or service to. Janice, have you got any any, uh, certifications? Because I really think that's a very valid point. Yes, we um, obtained our WeBank certification, and we've applied for the NMSDC as well. And so my question to you, so how should she use these certifications? How should she leverage them? Because people get them, but then I hear it hasn't done anything for them, but but it's because they don't know how to leverage them properly? Yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing, and, you know, think about it. I was uh, the head of uh, business diversity development back in 1999 for Pitney Bowes. The model and the processes and maybe the rules of engagement really haven't changed a lot in 20 years. So being certified is a big first step. But the second step, and I, and I still hear this, is, okay, now that you're certified, go to our website and get yourself registered as a vendor. I still have to do that even now where I work. I have to get our organization registered as a vendor uh, for providing business support services. So that's a real important first step. But then the second step is not badgering the head of the Small Business uh, Development Advocacy Office, but really talking to those end users or potential end users, and not in a real direct way. It's kind of almost subliminal. So if you find out that there's going to be, let's say, something hosted by one of the local chambers, and you show up, and they just happen to be there. Then you buttonhole them, you grab them. Hey, you know, and it's a consultative sell. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? How are you addressing this issue? You're not selling them. You're trying to understand where the pain point is. And then you give them your card and you say, you know, I'd like to maybe follow up at some point. Next thing you know, you're in their office. They're introducing you to other people in those offices. And then all of a sudden, they introduce you to who the decision maker is. And let me tell you, no one no one's going to go out on a limb and introduce you to the decision maker unless they absolutely feel like 90 percent i think this is a person we need to get to know maybe they have something that can address the the issue that we're trying to to meet and then the next thing you know you got a contract in hand 
I love that point on the consultative cell, um, not just to kind of make the informal connection, but also to hear their language. Because a lot of times, small businesses think they're selling something to address a problem, but they're not using the language that resonates with that company or organization. So I think that's a really good point. Thank you, Henry. That That's actually something that even internally an employee sometimes will take time to understand. It'll take them a while mm-hmm. to understand what is the language. It took me forever at American Express, like two years, before I understood this is a relationship-based company. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand what that was until two years later. After getting hit in the head with several bricks, (laughs) I finally got it. And Janice, um, if I understand correctly, that part of learning the language is what you're doing in building your advisory board as well, right? Getting people um, engaged that can kind of tell you the different kinds of language that different potential clients or people that are like your potential clients might use. Is that right? Tell us more about the advisory board. Absolutely. I think that as an entrepreneur, you need to recognize that you don't know everything. And as such, you want to surround yourself with experts like Henry to be able to help you assess those gaps and help refine your strategy. So we're building our advisory board with HR experts, you know, such as people like Henry that have that experience and really understand the persona and who we're selling to so that when we do, you know, pitch practice and sales practice or we're building our pipeline and analyzing and qualifying leads, they have this expert insight that you can't get unless you've actually been in the field. And that's really invaluable to us. Um, In addition, I just want to touch on the comment regarding building relationships, because I agree, I think that's very important. And that's part of the reason why the Mentor Method, in addition to providing the mentor matching platform that you know increases inclusion and retention, we also provide consulting capabilities to make sure that we really understand each client and we're a part of that team. We want our customer to be successful. We will work with them. We basically become best friends with them for an extended period of time to make sure that we know exactly what they're facing, what the acute pain point is, and we work extremely hard to make sure that they're successful at the end of the day and their employees feel successful and prepared to continue staying within the company. So, Henry, since we have you here, and obviously the diversity, inclusion, equity space is changing rapidly, and we all have heard about the Starbucks issue, challenge, opportunity, Um, and you mentioned that a lot of companies, you know, sometimes have an informal system or process to support their diversity inclusion training and, you know, mentorship, talent planning, but clearly there's a gap still. How would you, what, first of all, what's your thought on the Starbucks issue? And second, how would a company like Mentor Method or another company, when they see a crisis issue or crisis opportunity, step in to help? You know, the, the, the irony about the Starbucks issue is that, um, I knew their first chief diversity officer. And I mean, she was the archetypical leader in, in this space. And she laid a lot of the groundwork mm-hmm. for a lot of the stuff that I embraced and, and continued to, to leverage. But I never really kept up with Starbucks mm-hmm. uh, after she left. And this has been probably uh, maybe 15, 16 years ago that, that she was there. So the fact that it happened Sometimes it's just an anomaly, mm-hmm. but sometimes it can also be endemic of something that's more sy- systemic. So in this case, because I don't really know a lot about what kind of training 
the frontline employees get, especially their, their first-line supervisors. Um, my, my first guess or my gut is telling me they probably weren't well-prepared. They, they didn't know what are, the, what are the various elements of how to engage various types of customers whenever they come into your workplace. I mean, it, it didn't even have to be an African-American. It could have been a, a couple of Muslim guys that just walked in. You know, there's one of the Starbucks that I go to around here in the D.C. area, and I remember one day walking in, I was the minority. It was literally filled with a lot of Muslim uh, customers, mm -hmm. and they were there having their tea, they were having their coffee, they were talking, mm -hmm. they were talking business. Uh, someone would just come in and just sort of sit. Maybe they were getting ready to meet someone. So, but the but the manager and the people that were there, they knew some of these people. So I don't. I think that may have been a differentiator. Uh, if you talk about what happened in Philadelphia, probably the odds are you probably had a first-line leader that probably was not well-trained. They weren't that indoctrinated. But, I, you know, in my DNI experience, I always used to talk about there's the people that have the will, mm -hmm. and there's the ones that uh, lack the skill, and they don't have the will. It's, it's one thing for someone to have the will, but maybe they don't lack the skill. I don't know what, what, where this woman fell into. But what I can say is the fact that they're actually shutting down all, what is it, 2,900 Starbucks stores to have one day of training, I think that's a great signal to send to the marketplace. But it probably also means they probably have to do more digging and finding out what are some of the gaps mm -hmm. that some of our, uh, their leaders might have. And in a lot of companies, uh, diversity and inclusion training is mandatory. Right. Uh, when I was in the financial services industry, literally on a – on a Friday afternoon, just before the holidays, I get a call from Ken Chenault, their mm -hmm. CEO. Yeah. So I practically stood up for the call. But he asked me a very tough question, and he said, can you tell me how many of our competitors or people in our space are providing mandatory mm -hmm. diversity and inclusion training? I said, I don't know that, but I will find out. And so in the next couple or three weeks, I called all my peers people that I knew that could refer me to, let's say, another company to find out. And what I found was like 75% of those companies in that space were providing mandatory training. And much, much of it was at the director level and above. Hmm. And at a previous place where I went, we didn't have mandatory training. Uh, whatever we had was still compliance-oriented, yeah. compliance-driven. So I had to craft new training that could be done online and I chose to come back, a ratchet it down to first-line supervisor. Hmm. Because if there's going to be a problem, it's probably going to be at the first-line supervisor level. You, you know, so it's, it's really interesting, too. I've had, I mean, so many conversations around diversity and inclusion. Being an African-American woman in tech also was pinged a lot to help with some of our challenges in diversity and inclusion. I, too, worked at SEIC for a while and then a couple of other Beltway Bandits and ended with Booz Allen Hamilton. Um, you know, it's interesting, some of the conversations I'm having now are around how some of the women minority leaders are actually having diversity inclusion fatigue. Can you talk a bit about that? That's a really good question. Um, and it's one that I was really hypersensitive to when I was a chief diversity officer. I, I learned that very early in my career uh, when I was at Pitney Bowes. And what happens is the usual suspects of minorities and women, or maybe even JLBT employees, end up getting tapped to represent the company. 
And it gets to the point where they're spending a lot more time doing that than on their day jobs. And it actually starts impacting their day job, number one. Number two, unless the business proposition for why is DNI important within a company, it can create fatigue because people are keep getting hit over the head with, well, you need to do this, you need to do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, but when people find out, gee, there's a competitive advantage, mm -hmm. there's a way to increase our market share, and you're sharing the wealth and going beyond the usual suspects to be able to participate, all of a sudden you're starting to garner uh, uh, allies and advocates that maybe you didn't even think about. Uh, and, and when I was at Pitney Bowes, we used to attend the, the National Conference of Black Mayors. And my, one of my uh, predecessors in that corporate uh, diversity role moved on to a staffing function, and I inherited the corporate diversity role. So I was responsible for business diversity development and corporate diversity. And when the National Conference of Black Mayors was coming up, our consultants that would help us with the PR and our presence said, who are you going to have um, accepting an award? You have, we're, we're actually going to, Pitney Bowes is going to be recognized by the award. Are, are you going to be, be able to accept the award? I said, no, I'm not. And they were shocked. They go, why aren't you? They got really contentious with me. I said, because I'm going to ask the regional vice president that's, that sells into state and local government, a white guy from Georgia, to accept this, this award. And I'm going to have him in tow at the conference so that he can meet some of his customers and constituents. That was like one of the best things that I could have ever done. And my predecessor mm -hmm. said, I wouldn't do that. I said, why not? Well, he's not black. I said, so? Our customers are different hues. Our, our employee base is very diverse. Yeah. Why can't he represent us mm -hmm. at the National Conference of Black Mayors? He was so successful that later they invited him to come to be a keynote at another event. Wow. So my, my, whole, uh, uh, my whole approach to try to uh, address trying to reduce the diversity fatigue is don't pick on, on the usual suspects. There's going to be a time and a place when you want to bring them in, mm -hmm. but you have to kind of divide, divide the, uh, the, the engagement right. by all employees. All employees have to be representing the face of the company, and that really became Pitney Bowes' sort of approach. Mm -hmm. All employees have to represent what we're trying to do in terms of diversity and inclusion. Right. So for in Janice's case, or mentor method, method was a situation like Starbucks. Would this be a good time for her to try to step in, or would it not be because of the controversy surrounding Starbucks right now? What are your thoughts on that? You know, to try uh, to reach, do some outreach. I think a soft touch mm -hmm. would probably be appropriate. You know, I know you guys are right now in crisis. They're in crisis management mode. They're they they're not circling the wagons because that would be a bad sign. But I think it still would be okay to do a touch point and say, mm -hmm. you know, um, we're not. Uh, we're not trainers in diversity and inclusion, but part of what we do is really kind of an extension of that mm -hmm. through, through mentoring initiatives. And that would be another thing that if I was inside the company as, as chief diversity officer and even a line leader is to say, you know what, we really haven't done a lot as far as creating awareness internally with our line leaders and our senior leaders as far as engaging people of color, mm -hmm. women, et cetera. I think right now would be a good time to go ahead and, and, and look at that. That could be the next step. But I can tell you right now, crisis management 
and diversity training is really going to be the thing that, that they're doing. And I, I don't even want to think how much they're spending. It's probably significant. Wow. The cost of diversity and inclusion, the cost of doing the right thing, not just for compliance, but for cultural, for people, right? Yeah. Right. I used to tell line leaders that didn't get it, I go, pay me now or pay me later. Right, right. And they go, well, what do you mean? I said, think about it. What if you do something or say something and all of a sudden now you got a class action suit mm -hmm. by a group of employees? And then I could hear, I could see the lip shaking. And they go, I don't want that. I said, well, then you need to listen to what I'm telling you. Right. Yeah, I mean, diversity inclusion is a mindset. It's not, it's not a checklist. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And that's where companies that, that do get it and their business model is based on trying to create a competitive advantage in the marketplace, uh, they, you, you'll see that a lot of their processes can be very sophisticated But because I haven't really assessed where is Starbucks and all this? Um, one thing that I have seen with some companies, and, and it is a risk, is where they become too focused maybe in one area. Right. I've seen that where they might say, well, you know, the emphasis right now should be on women. So they mm -hmm. focus all their energy on women. Uh, or, in, in the, you know, in, in maybe another case, uh, GLBT mm -hmm. is going to be the focus. So it becomes a flavor of the month. And so you really have to be holistic across the spectrum even for the poor white guy mm -hmm. that, that works in a company they also have the, they have diversity too but right. it, it's right. just it's it's a little bit different so um the the thing that happened at starbucks it's sad that it happened and it's sad the way it happened uh i'm i think it, i applaud the ceo for taking the step that he did and meeting with those two uh young men but um you know is there is there more to it is there, is there a fire that's smoldering and no one's caught it? Uh, my guess is if I was to do an assessment of where they are and what they're, where they're at is they've probably ignored some elements of, of DNI, and that may have been part of, partly what's caused this. That's great. Janice, tell our listeners where they can learn more about you and the Mentor Method. Absolutely. You can learn more about the Mentor Method by visiting our website, TheMentorMethod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TheMentorMethod. And if you're interested in learning more about our platform or launching a pilot or a demo to see just how innovative what we're doing is, um, please email me, Janice, J-A-N-I-C-E, at MentorMethod.com. Great. And Henry, how can our listeners connect with you? Um, I can always be reached via email at hernandez at linden.org. That's H and then H-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-Z at linden, L-I-N-D-E-N.org. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. If any of your listeners invite me to connect with them, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> as long as they say, I, I heard about you on this podcast. Uh, and then also I have a Twitter account and it's at Rice Decolote. That's R-I-C-E. T-E-C-O-L-A-T-E. -E. And for those of you that don't know what tecolote means, it means owl because I went to Rice University and we're the Rice Owls. Nice. <laughs> Lots of um, alumni, uh, what do I want to say, loyalty around here at different <laughs> schools. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, to summarize what we talked about today, 
when you are looking at B2B sales, first of all, really find out what the lay of the land is. Understand who's doing what, what your competitors are doing, and know your prospect really well. Not just the people you might be talking to, but the company overall. Really understand what's going on in that company, engage that company, and definitely look at the interested parties on a much broader level. So outside of chief diversity officers in the case of the mentor method or HR professionals or whatever for your business is the usual suspects, look outside of that and see how you can engage them. Definitely ask questions about what people are doing now and get into a consultative model. Doing that selling with really finding out what's going on first and not kind of, you know, hitting people over the head with your solution. You know, don't necessarily even... Um, critique the internal solution, but just ask, is it working? How's it working? And then, of course, um, figuring out when you do um, ask those questions, what are the needs that your constituents have? What are their pain points? What do they really want out of um, a true solution? And then, of course, address costs, not just monetary costs, but administrative costs as well. What is it taking as far as people's time within the company? Um, Janice is already doing this, and Henry talked about demonstrating your proof of concept. The mentor method is doing that by offering pilots to different companies. Use good testimonials to show um, your credibility and what's already going on, and of course, good user experience. You always wanna have that with any product or service that you're selling. And then finally, make sure you're addressing whatever it is that your product or service is offering from a strategic level, making sure to keep that big picture in mind and knowing what your business model is. And then finally, talking about branding oneself and one's company, and part of that might be getting certified, in this case, as one of those advocacy organization and going to those conferences and getting yourself known. So thank you for joining us today on our show. Make sure to check out our website at getfoundgetfunded.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Check us out on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And of course, listen each week and don't miss an episode.